40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In chapter 6, verse 1, Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Let's pray for his ministry among us as we seek to understand it and apply it. Lord Jesus, uh, you are the word of God incarnate. You have given us this, your word, by the power and agency of your Holy Spirit. We bow before you. We humble ourselves before you and ask you yet again for this additional ministry of the Spirit, this ministry in which he opens our eyes and our hearts and illumines this word so that it might live and have power for us. And so Jesus, by your spirit, come and do this to the praise of your great name. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, just before the service, um, I was given a, just a, a notice, a little notice, and I want to call your attention to this. Um, I just want to acknowledge the flowers that you'll see in the foyer, which are an expression of gratitude to us as a congregation from Sue Dempsey, whose uh, husband, Joe, um, died uh, just a few days ago, his memorial service was yesterday. Uh, Doris and, and Kit and Sherry, uh, Sue's sister, parents and sister are here. Um, and Sue wants us to know how grateful she is for the prayers that you all as a congregation have offered in her behalf and in behalf of the family. So, um, so thank you. Uh, that, that expression of gratitude is deep and personal uh, and very sincere. Uh, so thank you uh, for your supporting Sue and, and her family in this um, difficult, difficult time. Now, we've read Acts 1 and, and Acts 6, and as I noted uh, in the letter, 
that you should have received this past week. And again, if you didn't receive it, there are copies of it in the foyer. Um, Next Sunday evening is a pretty important meeting for us as a congregation. Um, And um, I can't make you do anything. Uh, This is a volunteer organization. I can't fire you for not showing up or anything like that. But I will just say, um, while we do do these meetings periodically, this is an important one. And I hope you didn't pitch the letter. If you did, get a copy um, and, and please read it and read it closely. There are two main things that we want to talk about this coming Sunday evening, which were referred to in the letter. We want to talk about a debt reduction plan, which is designed to eliminate one of the two notes that we have on this facility and property, the CTK Partners note of just over $300,000, about $311,000. The goal in this is to free up financial resources to make available and possible to us ministry options as we move forward, one of which could be as we just think and pray about the life of our church, where we are, where we're going. One of them could be uh, the addition of staff, pastoral staff. We want to talk about that next Sunday evening. Not a new idea, but we want to talk about it. And then the second thing that we want to do next Sunday evening, and which we actually will begin talking about right now, is outline the process for the nomination and election of officers to be added to the session and the diaconate. Now, that's important, too. Uh, And so it's really, really critical, I think, um, that you all make it a point. Uh, I know some won't be able to be here, but, but... as, insofar as it's within your power, let me ask you to be here next week. Um, and, and let me say regarding this matter of the nomination and election of officers that one of the reasons it's important for us to take these two weeks to preach about these matters and for us to spend some time on it next week is simply the fact that we have folks coming from a variety of, of backgrounds who, who may not be familiar with how we do things the way we do them, and, and, and why we do them. And, and frankly, there may be some of us who have had experience even in Presbyterian churches for whom our understanding of the way we do Presbyterian-type stuff uh, may be a bit different and a bit new. So for all of us, it seems to me, uh, it's important for us uh, to be together to think about these things. Um, and, and as we do think about these things and as we move forward with these things, particularly uh, this matter of the election, the nomination, the, the uh, election, the installation of officers in the life of this church, um, we want to do a couple of things. This week, I want to try to put this whole process in a big picture. Um, so this is 30,000 foot stuff. And if you've been around here for a while, that you know that tends to be my way. Look at things from 30,000 feet and then drill down, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to drill down and get closer to the ground, and next week we'll look at uh, office uh, qualifications for uh, the offices of elder and deacon. What is required of these who would serve in these capacities? So this is, uh, this is big deal stuff, Okay. And to, and to press that home as we, as we try to put this in perspective, in, in a, a bigger context, larger context, uh, than simply uh, submitting some nominations and then in a congregational meeting having an election, let, let me ask you some questions. 
And I, I, you know, please feel free to make notes here, okay? And and I realize there's some folks who are seasonal and who are back for the first time, and maybe some folks who are who are visiting and will never come back, and maybe this will scare both of those groups of people away. I, you know, I don't know. But I feel constrained for us to think about these things. So, so as I ask you these questions, I really do want you to think about them, okay? How do you think about the church? How do you think about the church? And not the church in the abstract, but this church, Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Indian River County, or First Baptist Church in Vera Beach, Florida, or the congregation of the Africa Inland Church Tanzania in the village of Isenye, a place you'll never go, but where there are believers gathered for worship. How do you think about the church? And how do you view pastors, elders, deacons in those churches? How do you think about the church? How do you view pastors, elders, deacons in those churches? How do you view this process leading to election and installation? How do you see these things? Now, I'm going to say something arresting, and you may think I'm being overly dramatic or simply interested in preserving my job or something like that. But here's what I want to say to you. We're in the midst of an election cycle. In just a couple of weeks, we're going to elect a president and congressmen and senators and and a bunch of other things. Let me tell you that it is my conviction, a conviction I hold very, very deeply, that while on the one hand I am profoundly grateful for where I live and when I live, it is my deep and abiding conviction that what goes on in the church is immeasurably and incalculably more important than what goes on in civil government. And what goes on when we are in the process of nominating, and I will use this word, confirming, ordaining, and installing officers in the life of this church, is of greater consequence than who we elect as the next president of the United States. Now, you may think I'm being melodramatic or that I'm just interested in in keeping my job, but I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart that I believe that to be true. And that is not to say that what goes on in the realm of the political or at the level of civil government is unimportant. I know it's important. You know it's important. There is a lot at stake. All I'm saying to you is this. What goes on in the church is immeasurably and incalculably more important than what goes on in the world around us. 
I want to give you texts for why I believe that to be true. I want to give you texts which what this will sound silly to you. I suppose could maybe not. I mean maybe you're right with me in this. But I'm going to give you texts, passages that show this. And that lead me to say, which I've said to this session and I've said this to past sessions, if Fox News and CNN and MSNBC want to report on things that really matter, they will come to session meetings. They will come to worship services and report on the things that transpire in these settings. So let me give you the passages. Let me give you the texts. We've read one of them. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let me read it again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I want you to notice three things here. Maybe you notice them, maybe you picked them up. The first is in verse 1. I've mentioned this before. I wonder if you heard it when I mentioned it. I wonder if you've noticed it. In the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. My guess is that you're just like me. I think of the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus as stuff stuck in the past. I think of the book of Acts as describing stuff stuck in the past. Read the commentators on this first verse. Many of them will point out that Luke is using very intentional language to convey this idea. He wrote his first letter to Theophilus, rather a long letter to be sure. He wrote his first letter to Theophilus to describe everything that Jesus began to do and teach. He writes this letter, this long letter to Theophilus to describe everything that Jesus continues to do and to teach in the midst of his church. The heading Of my Bible, the ESV. I love the ESV. They've got this one wrong. The heading of the book of Acts is this the Acts of the Apostles. Wrong. In the original, the only word is Acts. The and of the Apostles are supplied. I'm going to write the editors, I'm going to complain against it. I'm going to say this book is not about the apostles. This book is about Jesus. This book is about the acts of Jesus. Jesus, who from his throne pours out his spirit upon his church. Jesus, 
who in pouring out His Spirit upon His church is pouring out upon His church the very presence and power of Himself and His Father. The Trinity is indivisible. The Holy Spirit is not a free agent. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. And it is the Son together with the Father who pour out the Spirit upon the church. It is Jesus dwelling in the midst of the church. It is Jesus who is preaching the Gospel wherever the Apostle Paul goes. You can look at Ephesians chapter 2 for the proof text of this. Where Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, both Jew and Gentile, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and to you who were near. Who's the He? Paul's the one who went and preached. But you see, there's a bigger, unseen, larger personality that occupies the pages of the book of Acts. And that person is Jesus. He went to Ephesians, to to Ephesus, employing the ministry of the Apostle Paul to preach peace to those who were far off. It is Jesus who is planting churches By the power of the Holy Spirit. Who is the main character here really? And here's what is so interesting about the book of Acts. Read. I I did this just this two weeks ago. In my Bible reading. Okay. I was at the book of Acts in my Bible reading. You get to the end of the book of Acts and you find Paul under house arrest. Covering all of his own expenses. Preaching the kingdom of God. And it's open-ended. It's like you get to the last verse of Acts 28 and it's a dot, dot, dot. It's a TBC. Or a BC. Being continued. Not to be continued at some point. It is being continued. The main character of the book of Acts is Jesus. And the story of the church is about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. And then here's the second thing. And this is from verse 2 of Acts chapter 1. Luke is writing to Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, which is described for you in verse 9 of chapter 1 of Acts. Taken up. What is that? What is taken up? What is, what is Luke saying? We think spatially about this, don't we? we? We think up. Up. I mean, that means that way, right? Now look, think spatially beyond this particular perception of space for just a second. Have you ever looked at the earth spinning in space from the, I mean, I know you haven't been there, but photographs, pictures taken from outer space of the earth spinning in space. What's up and what's down? If you're in North America, up is sideways. You understand what I'm saying? We're not encouraged in this language to be thinking spatially. Here's what we're being encouraged to think and to understand. We're being encouraged to think in terms of an ascension. Spatially, 
maybe you ascend mountains, you go up to Jerusalem. But in this case, the ascension is not a spatial thing. It is an ascension to a throne. It has to do with Jesus being elevated from a condition of humility and lowliness through death and resurrection, ascending to a place of glory and rule and reign. I'm getting more animated about this as I get older. You know, some things just get clear for you as you get older. And I'm getting clarity about this. I've said it before. If you're waiting for the reign of Jesus, stop waiting. It is present. It is right now. Fifty times in the book of the Revelation, there is reference made to a throne. And in all but two of those occasions, the throne or the dominion is a reference to God and the Lamb. Jesus has ascended the throne. Jesus is the King of glory. And He is the Lord of all nations. Accepting none. And what does that rule and reign mean? What is the significance of it? Let me refer you to a passage. So many places we could go. Let me refer you to Ephesians 1 again. Verses 18 and following. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is precious, folks. This is so exceedingly precious. I get that books of theology can be dry as toast. But let's understand what we believe about these things has enormous impact on how we live our lives day to day. And Paul is praying here that the eyes of our understanding would be opened. Look, I've got eyes in my head, but I've got another set of eyes. And all too often, those eyes are scaled over and they're dull and they're blind. And they don't see unseen things which are more real than the real things we think are real. I don't know if I can say that again, but I think you get the point. Paul is praying that the eyes of our understanding will be opened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule 
and authority and power and dominion. Washington, D.C., Moscow, Beijing. Read the capital city of any nation in that text. And Jesus is, ex- is seated far above all of those powers and authorities. Far above. Okay, hit the pause button. Why do I say that what goes on in this church is far more, exceedingly more significant than what goes on out in the world? Because King Jesus is seated far above all authority and all principalities and all powers. That's reality, folks. That's the church. That's what's true of King Jesus. And then there is this, and this is what is so exceedingly precious. Above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. He, the Father, gave Jesus with all of this power, all of this surpassing glory and greatness, all of this authority, He gave Jesus to you to be head over all things for you. For you. You know the Romans 8.28 thing? God works all things together For whom? For you. How does he do that? He elevates Jesus to this place of surpassing greatness and glory. He gives him full authority in heaven and on earth so that he, Jesus, might do for you and in you what pleases the Father And what in the end serves your highest and greatest good. That is King Jesus. And all of the nations of the earth serve him at his pleasure to that end. Hey, you go into those voting booths on November November 6th or beforehand if you're an early voter. Do you see? That you can do that with a deep sense of confidence and with a smile on your face. Because you know King Jesus. You know who he is, you know where he is, and you know what he's doing. And here's the third thing. Notice this, that for 40 days, I love this. You know, you wonder, what? What did Jesus talk about with the guys? You know. And the gals, I might add. Don't mean to be gender specific in this. What did Jesus talk about when he got his folk together, his brothers and sisters? He talked about the kingdom of God. That's what Luke tells us. For those 40 days, he spoke with them about the kingdom of God. Read Acts 28. Read what the Apostle Paul is doing while he's under house arrest in Rome. Verse 23 and verse 31. He invites people to come to his house so that he can talk to them about 
the kingdom of God and about Jesus, the king of the kingdom. It's there. It's there at the end of Romans. We're going to get to it. I mean, I'm sorry, the book of Acts, the end of the book of Acts. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. End of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is talking about the kingdom of God. What is the book of Acts about? It is about King Jesus prosecuting the interests and purposes of his kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms. And don't forget where Paul is at the end of the book of Acts. He is in Washington, D.C. He is in Rome. He is in the capital city of the most far-reaching and powerful empire on the face of the earth. And he's preaching and teaching about another king and another kingdom. That's what we're about, folks. That's the bigger perspective. That's the bigger context. Jesus continues to work. Jesus is alive and well. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell cannot withstand its advance. Jesus has ascended to the throne. Jesus is ruling and reigning. And Jesus will finish what he started. He will bring to completion what he has begun. There will be a great culmination and conclusion to history when the kingdom will come to full expression and full realization. And the new heaven and the new earth will be filled with the glory of the king of that kingdom. And our story right now is the story of the ongoing prosecution of the purposes of King Jesus. Now, let me work out some implications here in just the last couple of minutes. One of the implications is what I've already suggested. Think about it, folks. Try and wrap your minds around it. Try and get your hearts around it. But one of the implications is this. The King Jesus is the supreme authority and power in the whole of the cosmos, in the whole of the universe. If Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that will never end, never fail, never falter, but be brought to a great and glorious conclusion, then there is way more going on here and in a meeting of elders, a meeting of deacons, a congregational meeting. There is way more going on here than meets the eye. King Jesus is in the midst and he is prosecuting the purposes of his kingdom. And those purposes will never fail. Somebody's going to be elected president. Do you suppose for a moment that every purpose and intention of the newly elected president will be prosecuted to its full completion? Nada. Nein. Yet. That is not true of King Jesus. Do you see the difference? 
Here's another implication. The church of Jesus Christ is not a democracy. Let's be clear about this, folks. I love democracy. I love what Winston Churchill said about democracy. It's the worst form of government ever devised by human beings. It's just better than all the rest. But the church of Jesus Christ is not a democracy. It is a benevolent monarchy. That's a tough one for us to swallow because we have drunk so deeply of democratic notions. It is hard for us to get our minds around the idea that we are ruled. That government in the church of Jesus Christ is not of the people and by the people. It most certainly is for the people. But it is government of Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ. For the people of Jesus Christ. There's a difference, folks. And that leads to implication number three. As you think about this process, you think about this process by which we nominate and then confirm and then ordain where needed and install officers in the life of this church, we understand that there is an unseen King of glory who is at the center of this process. And here's how the process works for us. It is Jesus who calls. It is Jesus who equips. It is Jesus who identifies those whom he would have serve in these offices. And it is the church, it is the church that confirms what Jesus does in calling, equipping, preparing, identifying those who will serve. We confirm Folks, we don't elect. I really wish we would change the language of our book of church order to reflect this. And the simple reason is this. Words have content. And in a world like ours where we enjoy the blessings and benefits of democracy, where we are accustomed to electing those who will represent us and our interests, when it comes to the church, we don't elect those who will represent us and our interests. We confirm those whom Jesus has called, equipped, prepared, and identified who will represent His interests as the King of glory. Look everywhere. Jesus partners with us in the prosecution of the purposes of his kingdom. He does it partnering with us in preaching. He does it partnering with us in praying. He does it with us partnering in deeds of mercy. And he does it with us as we go through this process 
confirming those whom God has called, equipped and prepared, and identified to serve in these capacities. And he's given qualifications to us in his word, qualifications against which those possible nominees for this office are to be measured. And those qualifications are in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, and we'll look at them next week. But as we understand this, as we think about this stuff, we need, I think, and I just say this because through the years, I mean, through the years, I've just, I've had, look, come on, I'm not being mean or picking fights or anything like that. I'm just telling you that through the years I've had people say things that betray to me that this, this, this sort of leaven of democracy has worked its way into the fabric of their thinking and they say things unwittingly which do violence to the stuff I'm trying to shape us with this morning and have us think about. When people come to me and say when an office, and it's happened in the past, Not here, I'm thankful to say, but it's happened in the past. Someone will come to me and say, well, the people I talk to say this. Well, okay. Is that a proxy? Or the people, I've had this said to me, the people I represent say this. Are you a congressman? Are you a senator? Look, I understand. I get that elders and deacons listen and need to listen and should listen. And the pastor, as an elder in the midst, needs to listen and should listen. I'm not disputing or questioning that. All I'm suggesting to you is there is a higher voice. And while I want to listen to you, and I do my best to listen to you, what I want more than anything else for your good and my own is to listen for and hear the voice of the King. Because what He wants for His people is the best. So we are not a democracy. We're not nominating electing people to represent this issue or that group or that constituency or this other thing, what we are doing in this process is seeking to identify those whom God has called, equipped in accordance with those qualifications that we find in His Word. We are confirming them that they might serve the interests of Jesus. Tending to and caring for the needs of his people. It's big stuff, folks. It's a big difference to affirm that Jesus is king, that Jesus is ruling and reigning in the midst of his people, 
that Jesus is ruling and reigning over all men and all nations with the singular purpose, the singular view of bringing every one of those for whom he has died into a condition of perfect conformity with himself, leading to the final culmination of his glory in the new heaven and the new earth. I, as a pastor, elders and deacons in this church are called to be yoked to Jesus in that work in that work now it quite possibly is passing through someone's mind right now to say those guys aren't qualified you can start with me you can start with me folks I am mindful of particular ways in which I fail Jesus in the execution of my office. It breaks my heart. It pains me. It drives me crazy. If there are particular ways in which you sense, feel, can identify that I have failed you, let's talk. Let's talk. Because this is not about me ultimately. It is about Jesus. It is about His kingship. It is about His work being pressed out through very imperfect human beings. So let's talk. Mondays are tough for me. So if you want to talk to me tomorrow, be kind. But let's talk. This is not about perfect people. This is about people who have been called, who have been prepared, who have been identified by Jesus, and to the best of our ability, looking through the qualifications that Jesus has given to the church and for the church, we seek to confirm what Jesus has done already. That's what the church is about. That's how we should think about the church. And I humbly submit to you that that is how we should think as we approach this process of nominating elders and deacons to serve in this church in these next couple of weeks and in the years to come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, be the king and head of your church in this place, for this people, for your glory and for our great good. Lord, we humbly submit this process to you. We humbly submit ourselves to you and ask you that you would give us grace that we might do this in a way that pleases and honors you, that strengthens the bonds of love among us to the praise of your glorious grace. In your name, Jesus, do we pray. Amen.